would like to avail yourself of the translation that's being done by Susanna in the booth there, uh, do avail yourself of that. And do feel free to manoeuvre yourself in the room so that you get a good view of the PowerPoint, uh, since the pictures on the PowerPoint are much prettier than I am. Looking in this session on the, the intellectual problem of evil, or indeed problems of evil, uh, as with many uh, arguments for the existence of God, so with arguments against what often gets called the argument from design or the cosmological argument or whatever. It's actually a family of uh, arguments and it's the same uh, with atheological arguments, arguments against the existence of God as well. So we'll look at the, the two main forms in which the problem of evil has been put philosophically. Starting with the, the traditional so-called logical problem of evil. This is the idea that the, the statements evil exists and God exists are incompatible, are logically contradictory statements. But are these claims incompatible? It's not actually an obvious contradiction. Uh, an obvious contradiction would be if I were to say um, evil exists and it does not exist. Or God exists and God does not exist. Those statements are obviously contain a contradiction. But the statement evil exists and God exists does not obviously contain a contradiction. Although many people think that there is some contradiction there. To show that, we need to force people to dig down further, to dig further and to try and show us what the contradiction is. And philosophers over the years have struggled to try and do this uh, by trying to be more specific about what we mean by evil and what we mean by God. Uh, it won't take you very long after meeting a philosopher to discover uh, that they love the phrase, uh, well, the answer to that question depends on what you mean by. And just uh, here, that applies very much. Depends on what we mean by evil and what we mean by God. Michael Peterson notes that the alleged inconsistency is not obvious. It's neither explicit nor formal in nature. And to make the purported implicit inconsistency an explicit one, some additional propositions or statements must be specified. And here's a typical way of going about doing that. What do we mean when we say God exists? Well, in this context, it might be thought important to say, for example, that by God, we mean a being who is maximally powerful. I mean, otherwise, you could obviously say, well, the reason that evil exists is that God hasn't got enough power to get rid of it. It might be thought important to say that God is intellectually, cognitively perfect. It's not as if we can give ourselves the let-out clause of saying, well, God just doesn't know about the existence of evil. If he knew about it, he'd do something. But, you know, it's not his fault that evil exists because he's, he's ignorant. We don't want to give the theist that excuse. It might be thought important to state that we think of God as being wholly good. And as the being who freely created the world, rather than the world being something that he couldn't help doing, so that it's not his fault that this world and all its evil exists, as it were, because he had no choice. So if by saying that God exists we mean that there is a maximally powerful, cognitively perfect, wholly good being who created the world freely... If we think of God in the way that the Judeo-Christian tradition thinks of God, then perhaps we can start honing in on this supposed contradiction. 
And secondly, by saying that evil exists, and this follows on very much from what I was talking about yesterday, surely it's important to say that we mean that objective evil exists. Evil, if it exists, is either objective or subjective. It is either the kind of reality that we discover or the kind of reality that we might invent, as it were. Is it the kind of reality that just exists independently of what I happen to think or to feel or to decide? Independently of what a society might enact as laws and so on? Or is goodness and evil dependent and therefore relative to we subjects who have our subjective tastes this way or that way? Is talking about good and evil on a parallel with talking about our different tastes in what flavour ice cream we prefer? Now, if I tell you that I prefer strawberry-flavoured ice cream to pistachio-flavoured ice cream, you can't really disagree with me. Say, no, you don't. <laughs> well, actually, I do. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're wrong if you happen to prefer pistachio over strawberry. We just have different tastes. So there's a difference between us. But it's not like one of us is right and one of us is wrong. But is good and evil like that? If I say, the Holocaust was wrong, and some far-right neo-Nazi says, no, I think it was right, well, clearly there's a difference of opinion between us. But is it the case that one of those opinions is correct? and one of them incorrect. To think that one of those opinions is correct and the the opposite one incorrect is to believe in moral objectivism rather than moral subjectivism. Now, if of course, by the problem of evil, if the atheist is simply saying, seems to me that God does stuff that I happen not to like, subjectively speaking, then what, what really is their argument? All it boils down to is saying, I happen not to like God. Well, okay, well, that's your preference, so what? So it seems to be important to the problem of evil as an argument that by evil, you think you're pointing to some objective reality in the world. Now, I refer you to last last afternoon's lecture for how that then, of course, grants you one of the premises of the moral argument for the existence of God. So here's how the atheist uh, Robin Lepovdan tries to cash out in more specific terms what the supposed logical contradiction between God and evil might be. His first premise is that if God is all-knowing, he will be aware of suffering. And if he is all-powerful, he will be able to prevent suffering. And if he is perfectly good, he will desire to prevent suffering. But two, clearly, God does not prevent all suffering. From which it follows, three... So either there is no such deity, no such God, or if there is a God, he is not all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly good. Though he may be one or two of those things. Now, this, I think, is really significant to notice. We started with an argument that seemed to be an argument for atheism. An argument against belief in a supernatural creator. But when the atheist tries to be more specific so that they can try and prove that there really is a contradiction here, they end up with an argument that is not 
an argument for atheism. This is an argument against a particular notion of the character of God, if he exists. But it is not an argument for atheism as such. Because as he says in the final premise there, this argument is entirely consistent with thinking that there is an all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who just happens not to be entirely good. Or an entirely good, all-powerful creator of the universe who just happens not to know about suffering. And so on. So, as the neo-atheist Sam Harris says, and it's interesting to note, he is, as far as I'm aware, the, really the only neo-atheist writer who uses the problem of evil argument because Harris is a moral objectivist. Whereas the other neo-atheist writers, like Richard Dawkins and so on, are actually moral subjectivists. So, for them, the argument from evil can't really even get off the ground. But Sam Harris says, if God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities, the most terrible calamities, or he does not care to stop those calamities. God, therefore, is either impotent, unable to do anything about evil, or evil. But notice, an, an argument that if there is a God, he might be evil, or that if there is a God, maybe you have to think of him as, as not particularly powerful, is not an argument for atheism. <laughs> so the logical problem of evil, even if you thought that it worked, even if you thought that it worked, you would have to recognise that it is not an argument for atheism. In, in particular, it's not an argument for a naturalism, for a materialistic worldview. It's not an argument against some kind of supernatural worldview. It's not an argument against a belief in God as such, because... The notion of God is a very flexible notion in the history of ideas. People have thought about God in a lot of different ways. Indeed, that argument, since it assumes the objective reality of evil, as we saw yesterday, provides some evidence for belief in a God of at least a certain sort. All the logical problem of evil is, even if it works, is an argument against a very specific concept of God's character. That's what's at stake here. Now, of course, for we Christians, what's at stake here is crucial because the very concept of the character of God that we Christians hold is the very concept of God that's under attack at the end of the logical problem of evil. So it is a crucial issue for us. But nonetheless, I think it's important to point out the very limited nature of the problem of evil, even if you thought it worked, which I don't think it does. And indeed, and this may come as news to some of you, today the majority of philosophers of religion, including those who are agnostics and atheists, would agree that this logical problem of evil argument does not work. William Lane Craig, the American Christian philosopher, notes that the atheist making this problem of evil argument assumes, presupposes that God cannot have morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil in the world. That actually that is an assumed 
premise behind launching the argument. But he points out that this assumption is not necessarily true. Even if you thought it was very plausible to think that it's true, that's not the same as thinking that it's necessarily true. And you'd have to think that it's necessarily true that God has no morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil in order to think that God and evil are concepts that in no way at all could possibly fit together to think that they are logically incompatible. So Craig says, so long as it is even possible that God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil, it follows that God and evil are logically consistent. Atheist Richard M. Gale, in the process of trying to think through this logical problem and to to clarify it, to specify it a bit more, realises, he says, we often feel justified in bringing about or not preventing some evil so that a greater evil can be avoided or an outweighing good realised. So really he's saying, actually I see that it is at least possible that one can have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil to exist. And Robin Lepovdan, who we quoted from earlier, formulating the argument himself, recognises that suffering may be part of the divine design insofar as suffering is an essential consequence of some greater good. This is what's been called the greater good defence. Atheist J.L. Mackey, who I quoted in yesterday's lecture as well, wrote that the opposition between good and evil may be construed, may be thought of, in such a way that a wholly good God would not, after all, eliminate evil as far as he could. He says it may be argued that there are limits to what even an omnipotent being can do. That to say God is omnipotent or all-powerful is not to say God can do anything in a very broad sense. It's not as if it's even possible for God to create a circle that has four corners. God can't create a circle that has four corners. And that's not because he's limited in his power. It's because the very concept of a circle that has four corners is an incoherent, nonsense, self-contradictory concept. And as C.S. Lewis once famously said, you can't turn nonsense into sense simply by sticking the words God can at the beginning of the sentence. So there are things that even an omnipotent being can't do. He can't do things that are internally inconsistent, that are impossible. So Mackey, as an atheist philosopher, has recognised that there are limits to what even an omnipotent being can do, and maybe there are limits that are relevant to why evil exists. He says, it would usually be said that God can't do what's logically impossible, and this, we can agree, would be no real departure from omnipotence. So the problem of evil does not, after all, show, prove, if you like, that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another. Simply specifying that God is omnipotent doesn't prove that God's existence is inconsistent with evil because maybe there is some relevant reason why God doesn't or can't get rid of of evil that isn't 
an infringement upon the idea that God is omnipotent because we realise that that idea doesn't extend to the ability to do anything in that very broad sense that would include making square circles. A more contemporary atheist called William L. Rowe summarises the the state of play in this field this way. He says, Some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of the theistic God, the kind of God that Christians believe in. But no one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. Indeed, granted incompatibilism, that is, granted that people have what philosophers call libertarian free will, uh, the kind of free will that we intuitively think is uh, a precondition of having morally responsible action. Granted incompatibilism, there is a fairly compelling argument for the view that the existence of evil is logically consistent with the existence of the theistic God. And here, when he makes his second part of the remark, he's particularly referring to the work of Alvin Plantinga, the American Christian philosopher, who in the 1960s completely revolutionised the discussion on the problem of evil, a discussion that had been going on for hundreds, for thousands of years, and Plantinga really published something that made uh, a wide-ranging change to the debate. He introduced what has come to be known as the free will defence. And Plantinga argued that a world containing creatures who are significantly free, who have the libertarian free will to make choices between good and evil. He says such a world is more valuable than a world containing no significantly free creatures. To create creatures capable of following their moral obligations, but also capable of resisting following their moral obligations, of choosing to do things that they shouldn't do, and of therefore choosing to do things they should do. To create such creatures, God must create creatures who are capable of moral evil. And he can't give those creatures this freedom to perform evil, and at the same time prevent them from doing so. In other words, giving creatures the freedom to choose between right and wrong, but then preventing them from ever choosing wrong, is in effect not to give them the freedom to choose between right and wrong. You can't give them that freedom and not give them that freedom at one and the same time. That would be a logical contradiction. And even God can't do things that are logically contradictory. Now, Plantinga then makes the interesting move of saying, okay, people might buy that when I'm talking about man's inhumanity to man, but what about all the evil that is the result of natural disasters, say? All the suffering that people go through. Surely that's an evil. How do you deal with that? Well, he adds, what he admits is the implausible, but, and here's the key thing, the logically possible idea that all so-called natural evil, rather than merely some, as the Christian might well hold, that all natural evil is caused by the misuse of angelic freedom. In other words, demons cause it, having misused their freedom to reject God and become demonic. Well, okay, as he says, that's not a particularly plausible thing to claim is true, but it does seem to be possible. And of course, in responding to an argument that says, in no way is it even possible for God and evil to coexist, to refute, to undercut that argument, all you need to show is that there is a possible way 
in which God and evil could coexist. You don't need to claim that that is the way in which God and evil managed to coexist. Or that it's terribly plausible to think that this is how God and evil happened to coexist. All you need to do, Plantinga recognised, was give some story about reality that could possibly be true and in which God and evil consistently coexist with one another. So, giving free will to creatures who misuse it, including creatures who misuse it to cause all natural suffering. That's possible, and therefore that proves, if you like, that God and evil are actually logically compatible with one another. So Plantinga famously made a distinction, and again, you you don't know a philosopher for very long before you you get to learn that they love distinctions. He made a distinction between making a defence in the face of an argument from evil and giving what's called a theodicy. A defence is simply a logically possible account of reality that claims to show that God and evil can coexist, that it's possible for them to coexist. And that story that you tell, as it were, needn't be true or even plausible for the defence to work. It just has to be possible. Now, a theodicy is not merely a logically possible account claiming to show how God and evil actually coexist, but it must be, at least be somewhat plausible to work because you're trying to give an explanation of how you think it actually is the case that God and evil coexist. So it was a real insight of planting to realise there's a difference between giving a defence and a theodicy and that all you need to do for a defence against the logical problem of evil is find some story in which God and evil coexist consistently and that story be just possibly true. And if you can do that, you have completely undermined, disarmed the logical problem of evil. And as I said, most philosophers of religion today, including most atheist and agnostic philosophers of religion, agree with Plantinga that his argument for this works. As Plantinga said in a recent uh, debate with the atheist Daniel Dennett, he said, most atheist thinkers have given up the idea that the existence of sin and suffering is logically incompatible with theistic belief. Now, just in case you think, well, of course, he would say that, wouldn't he, because he likes his own idea. He's just blowing his own trumpet, as we use the English phrase. Um, Here are a couple of other quotes from other philosophers. Paul Copan, was mentioned earlier, says, even according to naturalists, the logical problem of evil is no longer considered a philosophical threat. Michael Bergman recently said, there is a nearly unanimous agreement among both theistic and non-theistic philosophers of religion that the logical version of the argument from evil doesn't work. So although at the, at the popular level, I think you will meet people raising this form of the argument, usually, simply in my experience, working with at least with sixth form students, 16, 17-year-old students in, in England and Wales and so on, they will think that simply to ask the question, well, if, if God exists, how come there's all this evil then? That simply to ask that question is to close down the discussion about the existence of God because they're assuming that there's no possible answer that could come back. And indeed, in such a situation, if someone you know, asks you, Uh, oh, I don't believe in God. If there's a God, how how come there's all this pain and suffering? Well, that doesn't put you, or we the Christian, in the position of having to to produce our theodicy. (laughs) You can simply ask a question back. You can ask, well, well, why do you think that then? In other words, you're inviting them to, to go from simply a statement that they've made to actually trying to formulate an argument. (laughs) <laughs> and you see, getting into that process, the, the professional philosophers who are atheists who've gone into that process realise that 
it leads to thinking that actually this is not a knockdown argument against God. Um, or you could, you could ask the person indeed, well, why do you think God might allow the existence of evil? I bet they can come up with some reasons if they think hard enough about it. <laughs> so the whole discussion in the world of philosophy of religion today has moved on from this age-old so-called logical problem of evil to what today is called the evidential or probabilistic problem of evil. The typical atheistic claim today is not that evil disproves God, even the very specific kind of God that we Christians believe in. It is rather that evil is a reality that counts against the rationality of belief in God. That evil is a reality that provides evidence against the existence of God. But that it's not a knockdown argument. It's just a reason against believing in God. And of course, in such a circumstance, the obvious next question is, well, how strong a reason do you think it is for not believing in God? Reasons come in all sorts of degrees of strength. Here is just one typical kind of way of trying to formulate formally an evidential problem from evil. Let's just follow this through step by step. Premise one might be something like this. Um, I, or we humans, don't see a good reason why God would do or allow X. Fill in X with your favourite example of evil or the fact that there's so much evil, perhaps. Premise two. If, if I can't see, if we can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing X, then there probably isn't one. Now, if you thought both of those premises were probably true, you would see that it follows from them that three, therefore there's probably no good reason for God to do or allow X. Now, if you add premise four, the thought that unless there is a good reason why God would do or allow X, then God probably doesn't exist. Because, I mean, if God did exist, he wouldn't allow any so-called gratuitous evil to exist. He wouldn't allow the existence of any evil if he didn't have a good reason. Well, if four is also more plausibly true than false, then it follows five, that therefore God probably doesn't exist, or that therefore the existence of evil is some reason for doubting the existence of God. And again, you could ask, well, how much reason is it? Now let me highlight for you premises one, two, and four. Because in the structure of logic, these, these are the crucial claims that's being made by the argument. Premise three there follows from one and two. So if one and two are true, then three just follows as a consequence. And also five just follows from what goes before. So the crucial bits of the argument, the work in the argument, if you like, is being done by one, two, and three having to be true. The other bits just follow from one, two, and three being true by the laws of logic. So let's look at those three claims. One, the I don't see a good reason why God would do this or allow this claim. Well, theodicy, unlike defense, is the project of responding to premise one by trying to suggest one or more plausibly true reasons for God to do or allow X. And here, of course, um, a key crucial one that people will often mention, and quite rightly so, is free will. Free will can feature within a theodicy as well. And I would suggest, since I believe in, in demons, 
that that means that free will can cover at least some natural evil as well. You certainly find that in the Gospels where uh, Jesus goes around healing people, chasing out demons. Those are not always overlapping categories. But sometimes people certainly seem to suffer from their demonization and Jesus sets them free from that and sets them free from their suffering as a consequence. Um, if, you're, if that's a topic that, that piques your interest, I wrote a book a number of years ago called The Case for Angels, which is a philosophical exploration uh, of angels and demons. Now, premise two. The, if I can't see a good reason, or if we can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing X, then there probably isn't one. Why have I got a picture of a giant American fridge up on the screen, you're asking yourselves? Well, think of it like this. If, um, if I open the fridge and I, I, I look and I think to myself, oh, I can't see any of those little yogurt drinks that people like having in the morning. Um, I can't see one. Um, there probably aren't any yogurt drinks in the fridge. Okay. Um, but what if I shout out, oh, uh, have we got none of those yogurt drinks, Mum? Who is the one in the household who stocks the fridge week by week? And she says, no, I bought some, they are there. You just haven't looked hard enough. Try looking behind things, dear. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that men, men don't think to look behind things in fridges? It's annoying, isn't it? <laughs> so you, you get the point. Just by the fact that I can't see the yoghurt, is that a particularly strong reason for concluding that there isn't any? Just because I can't see something isn't always a good reason for thinking that it's not there. It, it depends very much upon the context. So as Gregory Gansel puts it, um, those who press this probabilistic argument against God's existence, he reckons, on the one hand, they overestimate the percentage of cases in which we ought to be able to figure out the reasons why things happen from God's point of view, and we may also argue, using theodicy, that they underestimate, on the other hand, they underestimate the percentage of cases in which we actually can work out, at least plausibly, what God's reasons might be. I'd like to illustrate this by turning to C.S. Lewis again, and particularly Michael Ward's recent discovery of the Narnia Code. Have you heard about this, the Narnia Code? When you first hear about it, it seems like one of those kind of crazy conspiracy theories, but the more you look into it, the more you read the detail of these arguments, the more you think, Michael Ward really has stumbled onto something here that no one had seen before. And it's something that reveals to us something of the genius of C.S. Lewis. Michael Ward begins with this question in his book, The Narnia Code. He asks, how can characters in Narnia know of Christmas when they show no knowledge of a character called Christ? It looks like a mistake. And indeed, various literary critics down the years have criticised the Chronicles of Narnia for being a sort of haphazard jigsaw puzzle of pieces from different jigsaws thrown together just because they're, it's a bit fun. But there's, there's no inner consistency to the story. This is something about the Chronicles of Narnia that really annoyed Lewis's friend J.R.R. Tolkien. Because <laughs> Tolkien was very big on the human as the artist acting as the sub-creator. Acting like God in creating an internally consistent world and went to great pains to figure out, you know, in detail the languages of that world that he was creating and the history of that world and the mythology of that world. And you can read, you know, the Silmarillion and so on, and gives you all the background to the mythology that's just mentioned in passing in the Lord of the Rings books. And he read 
the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis and kind of felt, oh, grief, if Father Christmas turns up out of nowhere for no apparent reason. <laughs> in, in a world where no, there is no Christ in Narnia, it's Aslan. In Narnia, what's Christ suddenly getting mentioned for? It makes no sense. But was Lewis really that slapdash of an artist? Well, Michael Ward was suddenly struck by this idea that the Narnia series I now started to see was a literary equivalent of Holst's famous suite of music, The Planets. Each one of the seven heavens known to medieval astrology gave the key to a different chronicle, that the, the imagery an atmosphere, as it were, associated with each of the seven heavens, the seven planets, the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, in the medieval worldview. And of course, Lewis, in his professional capacity, was a specialist in medieval literature and a keen amateur, amateur astronomer as well. That Lewis suffuses each of the different books of the Narnia Chronicles series with the, the imagery associated with the seven heavens in medieval thinking. And that when you look into the detail of that, that explains a lot about why certain things appear in certain books and not in other books, and so on. Um, for example, um, silver is the metal associated with the moon the moon that drives you crazy and turns you into a lunatic. The silver chair is the moon book. It's the book about the man in the silver chair who is a lunatic. Ward writes, if Lewis was indeed writing his first Narnia Chronicle in order to express Jove, Jove's spirit, the jovial personality, Jupiter, we can see why he was so keen to keep Father Christmas in the story, even though on the face of it, Father Christmas doesn't belong there. Sometimes the storyteller will do what seems illogical on the surface because he knows of a deeper logic, a deeper magic, as it were, going on underneath. If you haven't grasped the real and inward significance of the work of a whole then this illogical thing will look like a mere botch or failure of unity, as Lewis himself said. But once we see that Jupiter's medieval imagery is the inward significance of this particular story, we'll see that Father Christmas is not a bodge. Now maybe the world is a little bit analogous, to C.S. Lewis creating the Chronicles of Narnia. And we just haven't had, in some instances, perhaps our Michael Ward to notice the inward significance of things. And in other cases, we have. Thinking about natural evil, let's use the example of earthquakes. Gonzalez and Richards are talking in the context of talking about um, the privileged planet thesis and intelligent design theory. Note that most of us associate earthquakes with death and destruction. But ironically, scientifically speaking, earthquakes are an inevitable outgrowth of geological forces, and those geological forces are highly advantageous to the existence of life on this planet. That is, plate tectonics makes possible the carbon cycle in nature. And the carbon cycle is essential to our planet's being habitable. That is, if we didn't have earthquakes, we wouldn't have a carbon cycle, and we wouldn't have carbon-based life on this planet. It's not so much earthquakes that kill people, of course, but rather substandard building regulations. And those are perpetuated by human greed and corruption, here was an interesting statistic. The 2010 uh, Haiti earthquake, which was a 7.0 earthquake in magnitude on the Richter scale, resulted in 230,000 deaths. 
But that's starkly contrasted with the almost identical strength Californian earthquake, which caused only 57 deaths. Pretty much the same strength earthquake, 57 deaths in America, 230,000 deaths in Haiti. It's not the earthquake that does most of the causing of suffering. It's people's greed and corruption leading to substandard building regulations, leading to people being crushed in buildings, which didn't happen in California because they, they follow the regulations and they don't cut corners in order to pocket the money. Philosophers Nick Truckis and Eugene Nagasawa make an interesting point, and I think this is the, this is the toughest philosophical point of the lecture, so um, if you don't get this, don't worry, come and ask me about it later, but I think it is a very interesting point. They know that parents have certain rights over their children which strangers do not have. And these rights arise from the parents being, to, to some extent at least, the source of their children's existence, uh, as well as their role as benefactor and provider for their children. Similarly, God in virtue of his role as our creator and our benefactor, may have the right to allow us to endure abuse and murder, whereas we do not have this sort of rights over each other. We are, we are perhaps as humans too quick to move from, I don't have the right to permit certain suffering in the world to the conclusion that therefore God can't have the right to permit that suffering and that he ought to be doing something about it because if I were in a situation where I knew about it I feel that I ought to do something about it. Now this move is is not to say that the notion of goodness and so on that we employ when we talk about ourselves is you know, so completely different from the notion of goodness when we're talking about a transcendent, infinite God and so on that we can't apply the notion to God, uh, that God is so beyond us that we can't understand his ways and all that and to make a sort of God moves in mysterious ways kind of a move. Some Christians have done that. Uh, it's not a way that I would go myself. Rather, there is a principled reason that we can see from our own experience to see why God's particular kind of relationship with us as his creation means that 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 simplistic move from, well, if I knew about that evil, I ought to do something about it. Surely God knows and he ought to do something about it. He hasn't, therefore he doesn't exist. But that makes a mistake. Because we can see, for example, that parents have certain rights over their children that they exercise entirely morally and rationally that strangers don't have. Um, So it's not really my place if I'm in the supermarket and a child is misbehaving a bit and his parents are there. It's not really my place to step in and say, stop behaving like that, young man, that's very naughty. It's the parents' right and place to do that. You know? But it's not mine. And analogously, God is our creator and benefactor, even much more so than a parent is. So they conclude that God may have rights over us that we don't have over each other. Thus we have good reason to think that, A... God may be morally justified in virtue of occupying that particular relationship role to us in permitting some evil, E, but B, we cannot be morally justified because we don't occupy the same role, the same relationship to other people as God does in permitting that evil. William Jane Wright Wainwright also makes an interesting point that 
perhaps it's the case that we do actually recognise certain good things for the sake of which God permits evils. It's just that we don't properly weigh the significance of those goods, that we find it hard to feel here and now, for example, what C.S. Lewis called the weight of glory. We kind of might be able to abstractly, intellectually see with St. Paul that I don't consider that the light and momentary sufferings of this world are worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. But here I haven't experienced the glory that will be revealed, and I am experiencing the suffering here and now. So it's very hard for me in my experience, in my emotions, in my heart, to find the glory that will be revealed outweighing that suffering here and now. That's quite hard for me to do, for obvious reasons. So it might be the case that it's entirely reasonable for the Christian to say, actually, I do know a reason that God has for permitting certain evils that does justify him in doing it, but I can understand why you and I, here and now, don't really feel the significance of that point. But that's because of our limited experience, not because it's irrational of me to say that actually this reason does justify God in allowing this evil. It's not irrational for me to claim that, and I can see why it's not irrational for me to claim that. Finally, the fourth premise, that um, the unless there's a good reason why God would allow or do X, God doesn't exist. That is, the, the assumption that if God exists, there's no evil that's gratuitous. There's, there's no evil unless God has a good reason for it existing. Actually, this is a questionable assumption, at the very least. And a philosopher called Peter Van Invegen, particularly, is famous for making this point. Uh, he uses what he calls the vagueness argument. And it goes like this. Uh, a jail sentence of, say, 10 years is really no more effective at punishing and deterring crime and so on than would be a jail sentence of 9 years, 364 days. You, you see that you know, if the sentence for a particular crime was 9 years, 364 days, rather than the extra day, that really would have absolutely no effect on how many people committed that crime <laughs> or how punished someone felt for having to go to jail for committing that crime. But if no gratuitous evil is ever permissible, if that premise is true, then a just punisher, a just judge, say, wouldn't sentence the criminal to 10 years they'd sentence them to nine years and 364 days. Or, or would they? Because actually, can't we just make the same argument again? What about nine years, 363 and a half days? <laughs> Does that extra half a day really make all the difference? That seems implausible. But this argument could be reiterated again and again until we came to the conclusion that no jail term was just. And that doesn't seem right. But surely some jail term or other is just. Sending people to prison for crimes is justice. It's perhaps not the only way of enacting justice, but it certainly is a way of being just. Now the solution to this paradox, argues in Vegan, is to recognize that the notion of effective deterrence and punishment and so on is inherently vague. That a perfect moral judge, even a perfect moral judge, must simply draw a line of demarcation, draw a distinction between what's enough and what's not. Draw that line somewhere. 
And actually, for any place that the, even a perfect moral judge draws that line, it will be true that his drawing it at a slightly different place would have been just as effective and just as just. So Invagin argues that there is no precise number or quality of evil things that must occur in order to secure certain compensating goods or to prevent certain bad consequences. He says, God cannot, and this is not a limitation on his omnipotence, but God cannot remove all evil from the world now for that would frustrate his plan for reuniting human beings with himself. And if he prevents only some evil, how shall he decide which ones to prevent? Where shall he draw the line? Okay, I'm not going to prevent all evil. Maybe I should prevent some evils, but where should I draw the line, as it were? Well, Invagin argues, given what he said before, that wherever God draws the line, it will be, in a sense, an arbitrary line. God could have drawn the line somewhere slightly different and still been a morally perfect, just judge in making that decision. So actually, all three of the crucial working premises of that probabilistic argument from evil... Premises 1, 2, and 4 are, I think, at the very least questionable or somewhat weak. Indeed, I, I would say that, premise, uh, that that last premise is, is simply false and that the, the preceding ones show that the, those premises are at least, the arguments we've looked at show that those premises are at least shaky or not particularly strong bits of argumentation. So the atheist Michael Tooley, and Michael Tooley is probably one of the world's leading proponents of probabilistic arguments from evil. And you might like to look at this book, Knowledge of God, which is a debate between Alvin Plantinga and Michael Tooley. So the guy who put an end to the logical problem of evil, discussing with one of the leading proponents from the atheist side of the probabilistic argument from evil. It's a fascinating book. And in that book, Michael Tooley, the atheist, admits of the evidential argument, of which he is one of the leading proponents, he says this. He says the evidential argument is, quote, highly controversial, even if it can be shown that, an evil, that the evils that are found in the world render the existence of God unlikely. It might still be the case that the existence of God is not unlikely all things considered. For perhaps the argument from evil can be overcome by appealing either to positive arguments in support of the existence of God or to the idea that belief in the existence of God is properly basic, a a rational intuition that we human beings have. And Alvin Plantinga gives a lovely illustration of this. He, along with many philosophers today, talk about this category of of rational intuition, of properly basic beliefs. Beliefs that we we hold, but not on the basis of other beliefs. We don't have some sort of argument leading up to this belief as a conclusion that justifies our holding this belief. But nonetheless, they're a belief that it's rational for us to hold. And he will talk about, for example, the way in which Um, your beliefs about what you had for breakfast this morning. What did you have for breakfast this morning? You just think to yourself, oh, I remember what I had for breakfast. Oh, yes, I had yogurt and toast or whatever it was. You're entirely rational to believe that that's what you had for breakfast. And notice, you haven't gone through some sort of argument in your mind. Premise one, premise two, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, I had toast for breakfast. Okay? You haven't called in the CSI New York team to pump out the the contents of your stomach, run it through a mass spectrometer, give you a readout of the chemistry of the contents of your stomach, 
and work out through scientific empirical investigation, ah, you had toast this morning. You just remember, it just seems to you that you had toast for breakfast. And that's entirely rational. And there are plenty of other instances like that. And famously, Plantinga argues that, well, for those people who have an experience of God, or they look at the night sky and it just kind of strikes them that, wow, there must be a creator. But that is an entirely reasonable thing to think, that it can be entirely rational to believe in God, even without any arguments, as it were, for the existence of God. Now, actually, Plantinga thinks that there are some good arguments for the existence of God. He simply argues that you don't need them in order for belief in God to be rational. So given that background, Plantinga applies that in this case of the the probabilistic argument from evil. He says, um, give the example of someone accused of a crime. Think of yourself in this situation. You're accused of a crime and against whom all the evidence stands. Now a whole row of witnesses come up to the court and swear on the Bible that they saw you murder Fred. They overheard you having an angry discussion with him and then you... They came into the room after you'd left, and there was Fred dead, and there was a knife. And, oh, look, here comes the forensic uh, uh, science guys. And they're saying, yes, here's the knife, and here's Fred's blood and DNA all over the knife. And here are your fingerprints on the knife, and so on. But here's the key. You remember what happened the night Fred died, and you remember that you didn't kill him. (laughs) You remember all sorts of things you were doing that evening, none of which were killing Fred. But unfortunately for you, you were alone. You have no good alibi. And all the evidence presented in the court is going against you. Does this mean that on pain of irrationality, you have to think to yourself, well, I suppose all the evidence that's been presented shows that I'm guilty, so I must be guilty even though I remember I didn't do it. So Plantinga points out that having a properly basic belief in something, in lots of of circumstances like that, very easily outweighs a lot of evidential-based argument for things. You know, maybe you're being framed. Now, of course, there might come a stage in that kind of situation where the strength of evidence for your guilt starts looking so overwhelmingly strong that you do start doubting yourself. That you start thinking, well, maybe it's not a conspiracy against me, but a conspiracy using me. Maybe, maybe I was hypnotised to kill Fred and then to forget that I'd done it and to remember other things that I never actually did. I mean, maybe that's true. But that shouldn't be your first thought in the situation. It should take a lot of evidence before you get to that kind of stage of doubting uh, a a, straightforward, everyday, properly basic kind of belief. And if belief in God is that kind of belief for you, then maybe in the face of the probabilistic problem of evil, as atheist Michael Turley recognises... You can simply say to yourself, well, well, I can see that there's quite a lot of evidence pointing against God here, but hey, you know, I was in prayer with him this morning. I've met him. I know him. Um, I know there's God. (laughs) It's going to take more evidence than that to convince me that I'm deluded in some way, you know. So we're we're getting into a situation at the end of looking at the, the problem of evil Well, we get into this evidential form and, as it were, at best, at most, leaning over backwards, as we say in the English idiom, to give the atheist every advantage in the discussion. We arrive at a situation where, on the one hand, in the one balance pan, we might at best have a kind of fairly weak evidential argument from evil. And on the other balance pan, we have Alvin Plantinga's properly basic religious belief that may soak up all or at least some of the strength of that argument then of course we can add our theodicy which we haven't had time to go into this evening in any great detail but we can add at least some thoughts in the the, the line of thinking of theodicy that gives some explanations that again might soak up 
any weight of that argument that our religious experience hasn't soaked up. But we're not done yet. As again, Michael Tooley recognised, we could then add into the balanced pan a whole host of positive arguments for God that together make a very strong case for thinking that the kind of God Christians believe in is the kind of God who is real. Now, we can look at the cosmological arguments, the design arguments, the moral argument, the ontological arguments, the arguments from beauty, from consciousness, from free will, from reason and rationality, from religious experience, from fulfilled prophecy, from the lunatic liar lord argument, the argument from miracles, and specifically the argument from the resurrection of Christ. For starters, Avril Plantinga once famously wrote an article, gave a presentation called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God. Um, and on the other side, the atheist generally has, well, a weak evidential argument from evil at best, maybe. Um, various versions of that. Um, in, pure, in, in, in terms of pure numbers, at least, uh, the theist seems to uh, have an embarrassment of riches, as it were. Although, then, of course, the crucial question here is whose who's overall case ends up being the stronger but you see, simply to mention the problem of evil doesn't close down the whole discussion about God. When you actually try and, and pay it serious, rigorous philosophical attention, it really opens up the whole discussion. Thank you very much.